EuroQuest. Deep inside another dimension, face battling barbarians and evil magic on a quest for adventure in a maze of monsters. This is HeroQuest, the fantasy adventure game where winning means mastering the arts of combat. I'll use my broadsword. And magic. Fire of wrath. Once you get into it, you'll never be the same. HeroQuest. Now with two new adventure packs, the legend grows. Hello and welcome to another instalment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this is another bonus episode made possible by the generosity of my patrons over at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. If you hadn't already guessed, we are delving deep into the pit of gaming nostalgia by tackling a game book based on the much-beloved dungeon crawler board game HeroQuest, which was released by MB Games in collaboration with Games Workshop in 1989. This game book, titled Hero Quest The Fellowship of Four, was written by Dave Morris and released by Corgi Books in 1991, when the game was at the height of its popularity. Children up and down the country were sending heroes on quests in dungeons and using dice to tangle with monsters from goblins and orcs to chaos warriors and the mighty gargoyle. It was a simple enough game, crude by the standards of the role-playing games and war games that inspired it, but there was still plenty of fun to be had from delving into the darkness with some friends. HeroQuest holds a special place in my heart. There's a lot of reasons I ended up as a gamer, but it would be remiss of me to miss out this boxed game that I played a huge amount when it first came out. I think the miniatures from HeroQuest were the first things I ever tried to paint with predictably poor results. These days I can paint a model fairly well, and that journey started with HeroQuest. So when friend of the podcast Stuart Lloyd sent me a vast number of game books to cover, I was immediately grabbed by the idea of doing the HeroQuest books, which I missed out on at the time. So thank you very much to Stuart for making this episode possible. The book is organised a little differently. There's a novella, The Fellowship of Four, taking up the first half of the page count, and a short game book called In the Night Season, taking up the second half. This is similar to Dave Morris's Nightmare game books, uh, one of which we covered way back when. So the first part of this episode will be a review of the novella, and then we'll play the game book. Let's get into it. The plot outline for The Fellowship of Four is dead simple. There's a sleeping dragon that can bring about the end of the world if it wakes. A powerful wizard has already failed to stop the evil cultist determined to wake it up, and now four heroes, a wizard, a warrior, an elf and a dwarf, must put aside their differences and team up to succeed where the arch-wizard has failed. We get a chapter from the perspective of each of the heroes, giving a little of their backstory and character and how they wound up meeting each other, before the final section goes into detail about their quest to save the world. It's all done and dusted in a hundred short pages. It's also great fun. Fitting a compelling narrative into a space this tight takes real skill. And Dave Morris does a fantastic job of making sure he hits all the beats in a way that's clear and also exciting. 
He manages to give each of the protagonists a clear identity and backstory. Fortunato the wizard is a gambler and a drunk and something of an egoist, but he provides the driving force for completing the quest. The warrior Asgrim is very much a classic barbarian obsessed with battle and honour. The elf Ildenus and the dwarf Anvil are much less concerned with the desires of humans and are initially reluctant to join the adventure. They're all broadly sketched, but they all feel distinct and they've all got their own history and motivations. You won't be surprised to learn that a dwarf is motivated by gold and that the elf regards the doings of mortals as a bit beneath him, but both are nicely presented and I really enjoyed seeing the team come together as they face death and gradually begin to respect and rely on each other. I generally like stories where a small team of misfits comes together and discovers that they're stronger together than they ever were as individuals. Uh, my favourite superhero comic, insofar as I have one, is probably Fantastic Four, and Guardians of the Galaxy was the only bit of the MCU that I enjoyed without qualification. I've also no real problem with cliché if it's executed well, and Morris executes it really well here. Every character's backstory uh, has threat and cliffhangers, and let's give you a little example from the very opening of the book. 1. The Wizard's Tale I am falling, plunging out of the sky like a stone. None of my spells can save me now, for all my knowledge and cunning, I am helpless. Last night I learned that the whole world was in jeopardy and launched myself on this mad quest to save it. Alas, the arrogance of youth. Now I cannot even save myself. I can only wait through a long moment until the ground comes rushing up and smashes my bones like a giant's fist. With my cloak snapping about me, I go tumbling down towards a forest which, even from this altitude, spreads as far as the western horizon. From the east, the dawn rises in streaks of burgundy and bright gold, glittering above the grey-green pane of the sea and fading into the lavender gloom of the sky. Faustus flaps above me, caught and blinded by a shaft of sunlight like a butterfly on a pin. I say above, but one of the more remarkable features of my predicament is that up and down have ceased to have any meaning. At this time, with gravity my most deadly foe and surely soon to be my executioner, I am oddly free of any sensation of weight. The only force I can feel is the tug of my cloak, whose snapping folds, caught up by the rush of the winds as I fall, seems to be striving vainly to hold me aloft. I am afforded the leisure to contemplate all this thanks to the spell of extended instant, a meditational cantrip which I invoked as I began to descend. It protracts the seconds, so that in these last moments of life I can drink in details that I might otherwise never have noticed. In reality, it may take no more than a dozen heartbeats for me to drop out of the heavens and crash to my death between the black tree trunks, but owing to the cantrip that time will seem like an hour. Such a curiosity. To be caught between sky and land, between mortal panic and languid reverie, I let my thoughts stray where they will, and perhaps inevitably they return to the events of just a few hours ago. How could I have guessed then that they were to be the last few hours of my life. You can see just from that small section that Morris is making use of several techniques to hook the reader and keep them invested. 
He's started in the midst of the action to draw the reader in. He's using the present tense to increase the sense of jeopardy. And he is using a flashback to explain how the character got into this predicament, filling in their backstory with the promise of the resolution of the cliffhanger dangling in the background. And each of the characters will have their own danger that they need to face, and that keeps the story interesting. But Morris varies how that danger is presented so that it doesn't become repetitive. The warrior's story, for example, is more of a self-contained narrative, while the elf's story is more about overcoming problems in the present than looking back to problems in the past. The final adventure they go on is a dungeon crawl, and it's necessarily brief, but Morris makes sure to give each of the characters a time to shine in the adventure. When word count is at a premium, you can do a lot worse than simply make a list of everything you want to get in, and then write connecting material that hits all those beats, and just see where that puts you in terms of your total word count. Writing to this kind of brief usually requires a degree of planning. Unless you're a really seasoned hack, you can't just start and trust that it'll all come good. You've got elements that have to be in there from the source material. It's one of those things that makes writing a challenge, but it can also be good fun, and the fact that there's things you have to include imposes a structure on the material which can make your job a little easier. The dungeon they face has enough traps and monsters to give a flavour of the classic dungeon crawl, and there's even time for a recurring villain in the shape of an evil orc shaman, which I liked very much indeed. And I think the writing style is good as well. Morris generally keeps things clean and direct, but he takes the opportunity to throw in some unusual words from time to time. It was something that I always really loved when I was reading fantasy fiction as a child. The archaic words that I didn't know and would have to either look up in a dictionary or infer from context. It doesn't stop the flow of the text, but it does test the reader a little bit, and that's always a good thing in my book. There were a couple of words I actually had to look, even though I'm in my 40s, and I still think it's cool. At the end of the Fellowship of Four, we've got a party of adventurers that we can feel as though we know fairly well. They have their flaws, but they've overcome some tough challenges, and they know that their fates are entwined. It's the perfect setup for an adventure and a fairly neat guide for coming up with a character's backstory if you wanted to do some tabletop roleplaying in the future after playing through this gamebook. It highlights that a protagonist, whether in a novel, a gamebook or a roleplaying game, should always have a reason why they're seeking adventure, an internal motivation that's unique to them. Characters in stories usually work best when they have an incentive to take action which is independent of their situation. Drama often comes when their own motivations and the demands of the situation are at odds. Glory, revenge and money are all fine motivators, but I quite like the elf's thing where he's trapped in a somewhat transactional view of the world, whereby he has demanded payment for a service he's rendered, but by those very same rules he later comes to owe a payment of his own. This allows him to be a slightly reluctant adventure at the start, which adds a little touch of cynicism to the group, which is always welcome. Okay, with the introductory novella out of the way, let's look at the rules. There are a lot of rules for this one. Some might say that there are an unnecessary number of rules for a 135 section adventure, but Morris has done a great job of porting as much as possible from the board game to the game book, even though he doesn't have access to the special dice that come with the box set. 
Combat is fairly simple. Roll a d6 and try and get equal or less than your character's combat score. Succeed and reduce your opponent's body by one. Anyone who loses all of their body points is dead. You can also try and parry instead of fighting. If you do that, you roll a d6 and a score of a 1 or 2 negates all damage that turn. You also get two other stats, mind and speed, which I think are fairly self-explanatory. These can be tested in the same way by rolling 1d6 and trying to get equal or lower than your score. With four characters, you also need to take account of your party order, because this will govern how fighters pair off in combat. If you have a party order of Barbarian, Dwarf, Elf and Wizard, and you run into three Orcs, they will pair off with the Barbarian, the Dwarf and the Elf, and it'll leave your Wizard safe from sharp things and free to cast spells or write the Great American Novel, or just wander off. Uh, obviously, if one of the party members dies, the wizard will have to break off from whatever he's doing in order to uh, throw some hands. Characters can carry a limited number of items, three for the barbarian and the dwarf, and two for the wizard and the elf. They all start with at least one item, so encumbrance will become a factor if you find more than a couple of trinkets on your journey. Then there are the spells, the wizard gets 9 and the elf gets 3. Cast them once and they are gone. The spells replicate all 12 spells from the basic Hero Quest game, which is nice but I think maybe needlessly complicated. They are split into four elemental schools, which do more or less what you might expect with fire being direct damage, earth being protection, water having a healing spell in it, and so forth. There's a movement spell, uh, which is resolved by looking up the spell and it asks you whether you've cast it at any of, I think, three specific sections. Uh, and if you have, then the spell points you to go to another section, otherwise the spell whiffs. And I think that's quite a fun mechanic. It's a sort of halfway house between asking you in the text and having a hidden section. Uh, you have to guess whether the spell will be useful from textual clues, and then check to see if you're right, but... It has the advantage that if you want to cheat, you can simply write down the sections where you can use the spell if you're not a fan of the old guessing games. Uh, so yeah, a great little mechanic. Very easy to implement as intended. Also very easy to cheat on. Two things I love doing. I think that's more or less everything. I'll explain anything else that comes up as we go along. My party is assembled. They are taking the classic marching order of Barbarian, Dwarf, Elf and Wizard. Uh, so let's play... In the Night Season, part of Hero Quest: The Fellowship of Four. Your travels have brought the four of you to Knocklaw, an eldritch country beyond Blackfire Pass. It was from west of this wild wasteland of fells and fens that, in ancient times, the King of the Dead sent his legions against the living. Fortunately, he was defeated by heroes of that bygone age. There are those who say he lies buried in the heart of one of the granite tors that you can see thrusting up from the barren moorland. You turn away from the window, preferring the cheery warmth of the inn to the bleak moonlit landscape outside. As you sup your ale, however, you cannot help noticing how quiet it is in the taproom. None of the locals seem at all curious about you, even though it must be rare for them to meet people from more than a few miles away. Rather than ask you about your adventures... They just sit in silence, staring morosely into their mugs. 
The door bangs open and entering along with the cold and autumn's dead leaves comes a tall old man in a shag coat. He forces the door closed against the rush of night wind and then crosses the taproom to converse in low whispers with a landlord and some of the elders. From the sighs and grim shakes of the head, you deduce that some very weighty matter is being discussed. Eventually, the tall fellow fetches a cup of mulled ale and brings it over to stand by the fire. He looks chilled to the bone and deeply worried. Do you want to ask him what's going on, or would you rather mind your own business? Well, well, as we all know, I am a naturally contrary person, and I do enjoy trying to refuse the call to adventure whenever it's possible, so I am going to try and mind my own business. If you have not even got the gumption to get involved when you see there's something wrong, how do you even expect to be heroes? Obviously, you would rather just stay by the comfort of the hearth with your beer. Perhaps later on in the evening, you'll be so daring as to risk a game or two of darts. It's clear you are not cut out for swashbuckling, and so your adventure ends here, before it has even begun. So, uh, an immediate end to our adventure. That might be the fastest yet, thanks to the incredibly um, tightly written and short introductory section. Uh, I'm oddly pleased about that. Uh, obviously, Sausagey Finger Bookmark rule is in full effect, and we'll go back and we will ask the fellow what is going on. At your invitation, he eases himself onto a stool beside your table and introduces himself as Douse the Glim, a local wise man. In my younger days, I used to sort out messes o' troubles hereabouts, he tells you. These days, my old bones creak too much, though. So, you ask, what's all the commotion about tonight? Oh, a bad business, and that's the truth, he says solemnly. He gives his cup a lugubrious look and then adds, Have you noticed what a poor, lonely sight an empty ale mug makes? Do you want to buy another mug of ale for him? The dwarf must agree to this since it's his money. I guess we do. Um, bonus points to... Uh, Dave Morris for getting the old man out of the way early doors as well. That's uh, always nice to see. It's kind of cool to uh, play up the fact that the dwarf is the only one with any actual cash on him. He's got uh, 20 silver pieces as one of his items of gear. Ah, oh, tis true, gentle folk you are, says Douse as you call the landlord over to fill his cup. The dwarf should cross off one silver piece, which leaves him with 19 remaining. After he has taken a thirsty swig, he starts to tell you the tale. It is the poor milkmaid Perdita from the village, you see. She's been spirited away, and there's no doubt she'll have been taken to the old manse that lies far out over the moor. It was the home of Grim Duggald, a black-hearted a devil as ever wore a man's face. Since his death, not a soul has been there and come back to tell of it. Now it's the haunt of goblins and dead things. Surely the villagers will band together and attempt to rescue, you say. He shakes his head and sighs. And on any other night, perhaps we might reckon on a handful who are brave enough. But this is Sawain Eve, when the unseen folk go abroad on the moors and work all manner of wild witchery. No one dares venture out tonight. And in the morning, no doubt, poor Perdita will be found cold and dead in a ditch. So you can go to the haunted manse to rescue the maid, or you can keep to the safety of the tavern, which will, as we already know, 
lead to the end of the adventure. So uh, no option but to go to the grim manse of Grim Duggold. We'll do it, you cry. We'll go to the old manse this very night. Your announcement is greeted by the other villagers with the sort of enthusiasm that they might give to someone who's just declared themselves to be carrying the Black Death. They stare at you slack-jawed, then hastily set down their mugs and set off home. As each of them passes your table to get his coat from the pegs by the door, he gives you a grave look and crosses himself before scurrying out. So apparently this is a world in which uh, Catholicism is alive and well. Just as you are heading out of the inn, you bump into a peddler who is parking his handcart outside. Do you want to stop to talk to him or hurry past and head out to the moors? Uh, I mean, I grew up in Yorkshire. I love the moors. Um, but I think I will refrain from wandering on the moors without a hat and uh, talk to this peddler instead. He has just arrived at the inn, having dawdled somewhat in setting out this morning from the last village where he was staying. His route brought him over the moors, and he has spent the last few hours travelling in gathering darkness. He has a drawn, pale look about him, like someone who has seen a fearful sight, and is obviously keen to get himself a warm drink. He is reluctant to waste time talking to you, so decide carefully what you will say to him. So we can either ask him what he saw out on the moors... Is it going to be a big black dog? That would be uh, the classic. Would you like to ask him the best route to the old manse or ask him what he has for sale? I'm going to ask him about the moors because I'm curious to see if Dave Morris is going to do uh, a big black dog. A ghastly thing, he replies in a trembling voice. First I heard the notes of a hunting horn. But who would ever be out on the chase on Sawain Eve, I thought, with not even a clear sky of moonlight to light their way. Then I heard what I took to be the baying of hounds, but an earthly sound it was, like the howl of wind heard in the chimney. At last I saw them, a horrible sight to make your blood run to ice. The hounds came in a pack all headless, with their barks howling through the gory holes of their necks. The beaters were capering hellions with the hindquarters of goats and faces that could clot cream. And finally... I saw the huntmaster on his horse, a great roaring black-bearded villain he was, and though I never before laid eyes on him, I knew it was the likeness of Grimdugall dead in his grave these thirty years or more. How did you escape? you ask breathlessly. By the skin of my teeth, pushing my cart for all I was worth, I fled up the hillock and down gully, careless of brambles and potholes in my path. And all the time I could hear the blaring of that horn and the horrible hot breath of the headless hounds on my neck. Just as it seemed they must catch me, I waded through a shallow stream and suddenly it was silent. I risked a look back and there was nothing behind me but moonlight and shadow. Can't cross running water, you see, them demons and the like. Now, now you'll excuse me if I discuss this matter with a bottle or two. He goes past you into the inn. You summon up your courage and set out across the moors. So I was almost right. Uh, it wasn't one big black dog. It was a bunch of headless dogs and grim dog old and a bunch of hunt masters. So I guess the wild hunt would have been my second guess. I was honestly expecting this to be a straightforward dungeon crawl from the outset. 
I kind of assumed that it would be a story that, that really did try and capture the experience of playing Hero Quest. Um, but we're going for something a little bit more uh, expansive, which I'm quite enjoying. You make your way out across the moors. The moon shows as a white gleam behind heavy shutters of cloud. Looking ahead, you can see three possible routes. One is a stone lichway that passes by a number of ancient burial mounds. The second, used by carts heading to and from the market, heads over the moors to the town of Ithirion. It skirts a ruined castle which many believe is haunted. Alternatively, you could take the path that winds through the misty hollows. Uh, I don't fancy the lichway with its ancient burial mounds. I don't really fancy the path through the hollows. Let's play it safe and go for the cart track. An interesting decision, to be sure. The track meanders beside a low stone wall choked with vines. It takes you past tangled meadows and under the looming shapes of the local gibbet. You are thankful for the thick clouds that hide the moon, sparing you more than a glimpse of the gibbet's mouldering occupant. No sooner have you thought this than a moonbeam shines starkly through a rent in the cloud. You catch a momentary gleam of a ravaged face, its lips eaten down to a ghastly white grin, and hurry past with a shudder. Eventually you catch sight of the castle atop the rise of a hill, a jagged shadow against the grey light of the moon. A sound comes down to you on the wind. Could it be the clash of steel faintly ringing from inside the ruined keep? Do you want to go and investigate or pass by incuriously? I will go and investigate. You make your way up the hill to the castle. Passing between the shattered pile of stones that was once the gate tower, you emerge into the courtyard. Grass and clumps of heather poke up between the cracked and tilted flagstones. The walls have tumbled in and the proud towers have become craggy stacks. Bathed as it is in the cloud-fretted moonlight, the scene strikes you as melancholy and dreamlike. The liniments of ancient glory. The unmistakable ring of swordplay startles you out of this reverie. A sudden motion catches your eye. You turn to see two knights in the middle of the courtyard smiting at one another with heavy two-handed swords. Both wear armour of a very old style. One has pale trim on his ebon cuirass and wears a light cloak. The other is dressed in a black tabard over a coat of silvery mail. Their faces cannot be seen because of the beast-like visors of their helmets. It is lovely, the writing. Um, I do enjoy how many uh, archaic words Dave Morris likes to use in his prose. Um, something that works especially well when you know you've got to keep to a tight word count um, really adds to the sense of adventuring in a fantasy world for me. But do we want to interrupt them or just let them carry on battering seven shades out of each other? Um, yeah, we'll, we'll go and interrupt their dispute and find out what's going on. You see, once I've actually had the opportunity to refuse the call to adventure, thereafter I am enormously happy to continue uh, and take every opportunity that's put before me. Their sword strokes are delivered with great ferocity, sending metallic knells reverberating around the ruins. But between each clanging exchange, they reel back to rest on their weapons, sucking the air into their lungs with sobs of raw fatigue. 
It seems they must have been fighting for a long time and are mortally weary. Their battle has become a contest of stamina as much as skill. You move closer. As they become aware of your presence, they move apart and stop fighting. Leaning on their swords, they raise their visors and watch you. Their faces are pale and soaked in sweat, and so alike that they could be brothers. Who do you want to speak to? The one in the pale coat or the one in the dark coat? Or step between them and address them both together. I feel confident I'm going to try and address them both together. You advance to stand between the two knights. This duel is senseless, you say. You are equally matched and you might fight until doomsday without settling the issue. If that is true, mutters one darkly. Then so long shall we fight, finishes the other. Their hard glare into one another's eyes seems to bore right through you as if you were nothing. Their expressions are rigid, with relentless enmity. Guided by a tacit signal, they both start to lower their visors, ready now to renew the fray. Wait, you cry, throwing up your arms in protest. Do you want to try and convince them that the duel is unnecessary, or would you rather take sides in the matter? Uh, let's just take sides. That seems like the weirdest possible thing to do. Much to your surprise, neither of them appreciates your interference. Do you suppose I need the opinions of a stranger to champion me? demands the knight you have spoken up for. It is no business of anyone else, the other snorts at you, pointing his sword in a menacing way. This matter is for the two of us to settle according to proper custom. You do not like the way they are looking. Every drop of the poisonous hatred that moments ago seethed between them is now directed at you. Do you want to fight them or do you want to retreat? I guess we'll leave them to it. This feels like it's going nowhere. Run then, you craven dogs, snarls one. May heaven blight you for your cowardice. The knight's curse falls on you like a pall. Even as you flee from the haunted ruins, you know that the accusation of cowardice will linger with you for a long time to come. Each player must attempt to roll equal or less than their mind score on one die. Anyone who fails loses one mind point. With the ghostly night's taunts ringing in your ears, you hurtle down the hillside and along the road, not halting until the ruined castle is in the distance far behind you. So, uh, that's cool. Um, I'm quite glad that they are revealed to be ghosts. That makes a lot of sense to me. I like the idea of ghosts being trapped in repeating the same cycles of events. We watched the stone tapes recently, which is great and really kind of delves into the idea of ghosts as echoes of past times trapped in the walls of particular buildings. Anyway, so let's roll for my various characters. The Barbarian has a mind of two, so he gets a one, meaning that he doesn't lose one of his precious, precious points of mind. Uh, the Wizard has a mind of six, which means that he automatically succeeds. Elf has a mind of four. He rolls a four and succeeds. And the dwarf has a mind of three. He rolls a two and succeeds. So, um, yeah, excellent. That's a lovely little encounter. At last you arrive at the deserted manse of the infamous Grim Dugald. It seems you have already had as harrowing a night as any you can remember just in crossing the bleak moors. But your perils are far from over yet. You look at the darkened manse with its high gables, gaping window sockets and shroud of ivy, and the feeling of foreboding makes you shudder to your core.
Still, you will not make things any better by hanging around out here. You may as well get things over with. If only you knew what the things in question were. Cautiously, you advance along the path until you reach the edge of a wide trench that surrounds the manse like a moat. There is no water in it, but the dim moonlight brims it with shadows. There is a kind of bridge spanning this moat. It is not like any bridge you ever saw before, however, since it is made up of thick square tiles of pale marble, which hover magically in the air without supports. The tiles are about two paces on a side, and are close enough for you to easily jump between them. You notice that they are furry, with grey mould that also hangs raggedly down towards the moat. So that suggests that they've been here for some considerable time, um, which might be a clue that they are safe to cross. We've got a choice between using these and descending into the dry moat. I'm going to try and cross by the hovering tiles. Walking on the bridge is more difficult than you had expected. This is because of the uneven coating of fungus and the fact that some of the tiles are tilted at a slight angle. If you have a length of rope, which I don't, then you can rope yourself together and cross without much danger. If not, then you might prefer to climb down into the moat and get into the manse that way instead. Uh, so without the rope, I guess we will climb down into the moat as an alternative. You clamber down the sides of the trench into the thick shadows. The bottom of the moat feels slimy underfoot, knotted with weeds. A toad croaks once, unseen in the gloom. Is the dwarf still with the party? He is indeed. Hopefully this means that he's going to spot a trap. You spot a secret tunnel entrance in the wall of the trench. This feature is common in isolated manor houses, an insurance allowing the occupants to escape should the manor be besieged in time of war. You make your way along the tunnel until it widens out into a flight of stone steps. These bring you up inside the manor where you emerge via a concealed panel below the main staircase. Cool. Always nice to see the dwarves ability to spot secret passages get a outing in a game book. Might be fun to do a game book with a dwarf as the protagonist and just come up with endless reasons for the canonical skills of dwarves to be important. You step into the dilapidated entrance hall. Your first impressions is of cobwebs and dust. The second impression is less favourable. Rats, startled by your arrival, emit frantic squeaks and go scuttling half-glimpsed into the darkness. You gaze up at the long sweep of the stairs. Under the grime of ages, a succession of nefarious faces glower from the portraits on the walls. Each looks more depraved than the one before, until your eye comes to rest on what must be the likeness of Grim Duggold himself. You cannot even begin to imagine what twisted desires and rank indulgences could have formed those gross features. The hot jowls, the obscene smile and the stare brimming with cruel delight. If the devil wore a human face, that would be it. Who hasn't looked at some jowls and thought, they look hot? I suppose if you were very red-faced, you might think, ooh, those are some hot jowls. So I don't think it's a wrong bit of imagery. It's just a slightly odd choice of phrase. You tear your gaze away despite a horrified fascination. Off to one side below the stairs, steps lead down to the cellar. At the back of the hall is an archway. On the lintel over this is displayed Duggall's coat of arms, 
a raised fist in scarlet bearing a flail on an ebon field. Likes the word ebon or ebon. Do you want to go up the stairs through the archway or descend to the cellar? I'm going to go down to the cellar on the off chance that there's some wine down there. Rickety steps lead down to a cellar whose frousty, dust-filled air almost makes you choke. Frousty is exactly the sort of word I would have had to look up as a child. Um, yeah, great use of frousty. You advance between racks of wine bottles whose labels date back over many years. You notice one vintage reclining under a thick gathering of grime of over a century ago. Do you want to take a bottle of wine with you? That's what I came down for. So, yeah, we'll give the wine to the... I mean, I don't trust any of these people not to just drink it, quite honestly. But we'll give it to the elf. You find a door at the back of the cellar. Beyond lies a sloping passage that seems to lead down into a still deeper catacomb. The darkness returns your gaze, heavy with foreboding. But it is down there, no doubt, that you will face your destiny. Before entering the ominous passage, however, you glance back along the wine racks. You might never again get the chance to visit such a well-stocked cellar. Perhaps there is time to sample just a few goblets of one of the rarer vintages. Uh, do you want to tarry a while to see what the wine is like, or do you think it's better not to waste time? I mean, it's better not to waste time, but I do want to get good and soused. For health reasons, not entirely unconnected with being in my mid-40s. Um, I drink very sparingly, uh, so I have to take my alcoholic pleasure where I can find it. So if you give me an opportunity to get fictionally drunk, um, I am definitely going to take it. It surprises you that Grim Dugold, if he still exists, has not drained his cellar dry by now, since he has obviously not restocked it in 30 years. Perhaps he no longer drinks wine classic bit of Dracula foreshadowing there. You uncork a bottle of white wine, the red being far too turbid for drinking at this temperature. I mean, it's very warm down in this cellar. We, we know that from the frostiness. Um, I'm not sure I want warm white wine, but hey-ho. It is pale yellow in colour, like autumn sunlight, and has a rich, fruity aroma. The taste fills the palate, heady fumes rising to whelm your senses in a swirl of pure pleasure. Sweet nectar! You refill your goblet eagerly. The dwarf and the barbarian are both well able to hold their drink. The same is not necessarily true of the elf and wizard, however. And if these players are in the party, they will need to roll a die to see how they are affected. The number rolled is the amount by which they must reduce their speed owing to intoxication. Remember that anyone whose speed reaches zero must be left behind. If anyone is capable of proceeding, you may. If all surviving members of the party are unable to proceed, then that is a problem. Um, I love the idea of the entire party just getting dead drunk and having to abandon the quest. I feel as though in reality a, a large number of quests are probably abandoned due to everyone getting dead drunk before embarking. Or maybe that's just reflective of people I know. Okay, so Dwarf and the Barbarian are fine. The wizard has a speed of three, and it is reduced by five, meaning the wizard must remain behind. The elf has a speed of four, and it is reduced by four, meaning that the elf must be left behind. So, 
Two skinniest members of the party are dead drunk and will take no further part in proceedings. Excellent. You go down deep into the earth. Finally, you emerge from the tunnel in a cave so vast you cannot see the walls or roof at all. A torch glimmers in a bracket on the wall beside you. If there are any mortal players left, then you must take the torch with you, as otherwise they will be unable to see. So the dwarf and the elf can see in the dark, the barbarian cannot. So we will take the torch. That's fine, the barbarian's still got a slot free. You reach the edge of a subterranean lake, but the water and your surroundings are so silent and black that you almost seem to be in a void. You see only the white stone key underfoot, the gleam of torchlight on the still water, and a white lacquered rowboat tethered to a bollard on the quay. Does anyone want to drink some of the lake water? I think we've, we've learned our lesson about drinking things, so we will not. We'll just get in the boat and start rowing. The oars fall almost without sound into the opaque waters. You drift out from the quay surrounded by an eerie hush. You have not been rowing for long when a landing stage comes in sight. This is also of white stone like the quay from which you set out. It is completely surrounded by water. In the middle, you can see a small shrine like the shrines of pagan times, consisting of a marble dome supported by pillars carved into the shape of human figures. As a tasteless and gruesome embellishment, the figures are depicted bound in shackles as though being stretched on a rack. You cannot see clearly into the shrine except to tell that there is something large resting on the altar stone. Do you want to dock or row on in search of the far shore of the lake? Let's have a look. Um, very curious about this. Your hairs stand on end as you walk towards the shrine. You do not need any sixth sense to tell you that this is a place of great wickedness. Stepping between the pillars, you see a grey stone coffin lying on the altar stone. Unlike the rest of the shrine, the coffin is very crudely worked and deeply weathered as if it had been exposed to the element for years. Before you can make a move towards the coffin, there is a ghastly bubbling growl, and four figures shamble from behind the altar to attack you. They are women, chalk white of flesh and listless of gaze, whose black hair and robes hang lankly as though damp. So we have four undead brides we must fight. Uh, they each have a combat of three and a body of one, should be okay. Uh, there is enough room in the shrine for all the players to get into melee. So uh, two of them will attack the dwarf, two of them will attack the barbarian. This should be absolutely fine. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the undead brides. Uh, the dwarf was reduced from a body of seven to a body of five. And the barbarian was reduced from a body of eight to a body of six. Even as you approach the coffin, you smell the slaughterhouse stench rising from it. It is filled with blood, and you can only pray that it is not human blood. What vile monster would keep such a grisly thing here? With a shudder, you at last begin to guess the truth. On the altar, at the base of the coffin, is a large bronze key. You decide this is certainly worth taking. Record it on someone's character sheet, even if something else must be discarded in order to carry it. Well, that's fine. We've still got plenty of space to carry stuff. I say I've got one space left to carry stuff. 
Do you have a file of holy water and do you want to use it? I do not and I don't. Uh, so we're going to set out in the boat again. Eventually you reach the far side of the lake. Unlike the quay you set out from, this is not a man-made landing place but a shore of white pebbles. Dragging the boat up onto the beach so that it will not drift off, you commence a search of the area. Quite soon you find a locked door in the back wall of the cave. It is of stout bronze-bound oak. Pressing your ear to the door, you can just make out the sound of muffled sobs. Do you have a bronze key? I do indeed. So we did need to stop off. I wonder if you get a chance to uh, break down the door if you don't have a key. A host of large white bats drops down out of the darkness. They will fight to the death to prevent you opening the door. Proof, if proof is needed, that something of priceless importance lies beyond it. So there are five bats, each with a combat of two and a body of one. I'm going to roll some dice again. I have defeated the bats. I will say that with... Um, low body scores on most of the monsters we've found so far uh combat goes really really quickly goes at a genuinely very pleasant clip uh, however the dwarf was reduced to body of four and the barbarian to a body of five in the ensuing melee but we've won you unlock the door it opens with a gravid creak to reveal a young girl cowering inside a small bare cell I mean, to me, gravid means filled with eggs. Is it being like a? Is it being used as a synonym for pregnant? Yeah, because I don't think they are exact synonyms, gravid and pregnant. Okay, no, I'm absolutely wrong. Um, yep, it can mean someone who's literally pregnant, but it can also mean uh, the figurative meanings of pregnant as well. So. Why did I even doubt Dave Morris? He knows words better than I do. My name is Perdita, and I am from the village a few miles across the moor, she tells you. How do you come to be here, you ask? I'm not sure. On my way home, I was overtaken by dusk. Since this is so Eve, I quickened my step. But just then, I saw a tall shadow of a figure lurking amongst the trees by the side of the road. I crossed over and hurried on by the other side, but I hadn't gone far before I saw the figure again. Somehow ahead of me still. I began to feel very frightened. I lost sight of the figure as I backed away down the road. Then suddenly I bumped into something large behind me and I was seized. That's the last I remember. Realising this is no place to hang around, you take Perdita to the boat and row back across the lake. Ascending through the cellar, you emerge into the entrance hall of the manse once more. If you were going to breathe a sigh of relief, however, that was premature. Someone is here waiting for you. Grim Dugold stands in the gloom of the hall. He has been waiting for you. His flesh is the colour of candlelight, and other world energies have swollen his already huge frame until his head almost scrapes the rafters. His eyes, two icy pebbles in the mistletoe bush of his beard and hair, roll horribly. And as he sees you, his growl of hate is like the howl of a hanged man. Do you have an item you want to use? Um, unless he's got a weakness for white wine. Um, no. No, I don't have anything that'll help. 
Do you have the code word Carfax written on your character sheet? I do not. Grim Dugold was a monster even when he was alive, but the weaknesses of the flesh have been stripped away, and he is now nothing but the quintessence of evil. Looking into his ghastly corpse-lit eyes, you know that you can never expect quarter from such a foe. This is a fight to the finish. So Grim Dugold has a combat of six, which means he hits automatically, and a body of 18. Um, so there's no way I can actually defeat him in a fight. Uh, it says there's room for up to three players to fight him at one time, uh, with the fourth casting spells, if, if they have any. Uh, the Sword Wraith Reaver will inflict double damage, which would be handy, but still probably not enough to keep everyone alive. So there is the option, however, to flee, uh, which is what we will try and do. Gasping for breath, you chase in a blind panic across the moors. Cold moonlight paints a maelstrom of wild fells, sucking hollows and stunted trees, all of which hurtle past in a blur. Then, as you stagger up the side of a hillock, the distant blare of a hunting horn echoes out of the distance behind you, and you hear the horrible baying of phantom hounds at your heels. Did the peddler tell you how to get away from Duggan's hunt? He did indeed! Hooray! We made one good decision in the course of this adventure. You pause for breath. The cold night air feels raw in your lungs and sweat plasters your hair over your eyes. Through the throb of your own terrified heartbeats you hear the gushing of water. Looking around you see a brook. No more than a faint trickle in the bottom of a weed-strewn ditch, but perhaps it will be enough. You mutter a silent prayer. The hunting horn sounds again. It is much closer now, but you do not dare look back. You start towards the brook. Your legs feel almost too weak to carry you, either because of exhaustion or because of terror. But somehow you stumble to the ditch and manage to jump across. The eldritch baying bays to a crescendo, breaks around you like a wave, and then it is gone. All is silence. You look back. The moors are deserted. Sinking back on the turf with a sigh of heartfelt relief, you rest until your limbs stop shaking, and then you set out for the village. Very exciting. Did you rescue the milkmaid Perdita from Grim Duggall's clutches? I did indeed. You march back to the village in triumph. The sun rises, casting a warm gold light that sparkles on the dew and does much to dispel memories of the appalling experiences of last night. The villagers unbolt their doors and emerge into the day. On catching sight of you, they raise a cheer and surge forward to surround you. Then you are lifted on their shoulders and carried to the village square where they begin a celebratory breakfast in your honour. The elders of the village try to make you accept a reward, but you know they are poor people and you will have none of it. Keep your silver, you tell them, for your thanks are reward enough. In any case, you know that in an adventurer's life, a bag of gold and a goblin are always just around the next corner. So, no mention made of the two comrades we left dead drunk and presumably now dead in the lair of Grim Doggled, and they mention made of what kind of revenge Grim Doggled might perhaps take on the village for daring to stand against him, but, you know, it's very rare for me to finish an adventure 
Admittedly, I did need to make use of the sausagey finger bookmark rule, but in all fairness, I didn't actually die. I just decided to play darts instead of going on adventure. So it's maybe not the, the worst one. So I'm going to call that. I'm going to claim to have finished that one. Um, it's obviously not particularly difficult, but it is a lot of fun. I had a great time with it. Um, I will go back and rummage through it to see if there's a way of taking out Grim Duggold, which I'm sure there is. Another example of my preferred technique of making it pretty easy to finish, but giving you an incentive to go back and try again. Um, be nice to make use of some of the spells. Uh, I didn't manage to make use of any spells in that adventure. I'm going to go away, I'm going to play it again, and I'll be back for you in just a few seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! At 135 sections, there's not a huge amount to say about this slender adventure gamebook. You've got a more or less complete flavour of it from my playthrough, but there are a few things I can tease out and examine. Firstly, it's a great example of how to construct a simple gamebook. It utilises the core mechanics of gamebooks extremely well. You've got a simple structure, but one designed to make replaying feel attractive. I think with a short adventure, one temptation is to try and make it heavily linear. The old corridor with rooms branching off from either side approach. That can work, but I think Morris creates something here that feels a little bit more expansive and invites repeated attempts a little bit more. You've essentially got a three-act structure with a simple introduction and the chance to get a clue or some gear from the peddler, followed by your travel to get to Grim Doggold's manse itself, and then a final act inside the crumbling and haunted mansion. There's three routes to the manse, each with their own spooky encounter attached. We saw the ghost-haunted ruins, but there's also a swampy area and a very nice barrow, complete with a barrow white and some ancient treasure. Once you are in the mansion, there's two optional areas you can explore before you head down into the caverns beneath the surface. None of these are exactly complex, but if you want to find a magical sword which enables you to do double damage to the big bad vampire at the end, then you do have to do things in a specific order, and that's something I do appreciate. There's a lovely encounter with a demon-possessed mirror which can play out in quite a few different ways, including providing one of the opportunities to use your Pass Through Rock spell, which is nice. There's quite a few ways for the final confrontation to pan out, depending on what you've accomplished in the earlier part of the book, and that's a great feature as well. The fight with Grim Duggold himself is almost impossible if you fail to do anything useful on your adventure, but you can make it easier with items bought from the peddler or by dousing his hidden coffin with holy water, and various things will weaken him noticeably or indeed allow you to take him out completely. I love a climax that can play out in a few different ways, and uh, this is a great example of that. It's especially impressive doing so in such a cramped number of sections. In terms of systems, there's arguably too much going on. I'm not convinced you need speed on top of body, mind and combat as a stat, and there's definitely too many spells to track for it to feel easy. The additional parry rules feel entirely surplus to requirements as well. It is nice to have the option to try and keep your wizard alive, but in practice I never came across any time when I actually needed it. 
The book isn't too challenging from a fight's perspective, especially if you remember to use your spells, but I did come away from most fights having taken at least some damage. As a combat system, it's less compelling than the core fighting fantasy approach, but Morris has done a really good job of balancing it, and the fights will always cost you some resource or other. Because it's easy to have both monsters and player characters hit on the same round, you don't get the fighting fantasy thing where some fights might just as well not have happened. In fighting fantasy, sometimes a weak monster is just really going to struggle to ever land a hit on a player with high skill. And here, even if there are monsters with low combat scores and low health, the fact that there's usually three or four of them means that one of them is probably going to get a hit in before you finish them off. And there's a neat thing that happens with this in the way Morris has designed the fights. He's built them mostly around multiple creatures with low body scores. As you take the monsters out, the amount of damage you take reduces, which feels really nice. It gives you a sense of progressing in the fights. As you take out monsters, less damage is coming in, and that feels like you're accomplishing something each and every round. It is something that you can also do with the fighting fantasy system as well, but it's nowhere near as well set up for it. I've done it once or twice in a game book, but I think it works best here, where your character's combat skill and the enemy's combat skill are independent of each other. There's a little bit more bookkeeping with having to remember what you rolled for your combat strength, and then what each of the enemies has rolled for their combat strengths for fights involving multiple monsters in fighting fantasy that's just not as smooth as it is here. I think I still prefer contested roles over the I attack then you attack system. It always feels a bit to me like we're fighting with our eyes closed and just swinging wildly at each other and hoping for the best, but the system is perfectly functional and doesn't throw up any weird surprises. Might be basic, but basic systems which work are a nice thing. The spells are all fine as well. They'll give you the edge in some fights. They can speed up fights and stop you taking damage, but it's the pass through rock and sleep spells which are the absolute highlight. It's an odd system whereby you decide to use the spell, then check the spell description to see if you're on a section where the spell will do something, but in practice it works fine. There's something wonderful about getting to the fight with the bats before the prison cell and thinking, I wonder if I could send these bats to sleep. Then checking the spell description and finding that you can indeed make them take a nap. That has the advantage that uh, you don't have to kill any bats if you do that. And personally, I love bats. They're just little hamsters that have learned to hang glide. I just find them delightful. The same is true for the pass through rock spell. There's one obvious place to use it, which is heavily telegraphed, but there's also one location where it feels particularly spicy. It's one that most players won't even find since it requires the wizard to be at the front of the marching order, but it enables him to escape from a trap, and spotting that was probably the highlight of my entire time with the book. The party mechanics are fine, but having a party always feels a little bit odd to me in a game book. It distances me from the action when I think that the you which the second person prose is addressing is either a corporate identity somehow made up of all of the different people in my party or it's casting me as some sort of weird puppet master who makes these characters dance to my particular tune. I think mechanically having a party adds a lot 
It adds a degree of complexity to the game, particularly in terms of combat interactions, and it mirrors the fantasy gaming trope of the adventuring party very nicely. But the fact is, the book doesn't know how many of the party are alive at any one time, and that creates a sense that these adventurers are extremely callous about the deaths of friends and comrades since they never mention them. If you build the narrative in a way that's consonant with a lack of concern for dead party members, that's one thing, but it sticks out like a sore thumb when you're doing a favour for some villagers with no real expectation of a reward. And it's a problem because game books stop working if the book doesn't have any way of knowing whether significant events have happened. On a mechanical level, it's not too bad. You can check whether the dwarf is still alive when his skills might be called upon, for example. But from a story perspective, you kind of have to ignore it for the most part. Much as I like parties from a design perspective, I think they create a lot of problems from a narrative perspective. And we've seen that in the recent uh, Legendary Kingdoms book we covered uh, a few months ago. If I was going to do a party, I think I'd want to organise it by having the player represent only the leader of that party and have the other members feel more like NPCs than people under direct control. And I'd probably track dead party members with keywords so that I could throw in a few narrative moments to take account of the loss as well. Running across people who used to know dead party members is a good way to remind the reader of the emotional as well as the practical cost of ending a life of adventure all too soon, especially if that uh, little reminder doesn't lead to anything particularly important if the party member is still alive. It would just give the emotional moment its own time to shine. In terms of the book's overall vibe, I was slightly surprised that it wasn't trying to stick closer to the aesthetics of the board game. I was expecting dungeons and orcs and that sort of thing, but I can't complain at all about what I got. On reflection, it is probably the right decision to do something that the board game can't, since a dungeon would probably have felt like a somewhat subdued attempt to capture the board game's feel, rather than something that pushes the concepts into new space, which is what this does very effectively. I also very much like how efficiently the adventure gets started. That's something I think fighting fantasy books could stand to have emulated more, the attraction of a gamebook is the ability to make decisions, and wading through pages of turgid backstory doesn't highlight the unique features of a gamebook at all. Obviously in this case you've got essentially a hundred pages of background in, f in the form of the novella which opens the action, but when we begin our adventure we are very much starting on a new adventure, one that is not directly linked to the events of the novella except in terms of how the party met each other. And I think you could have presented the premise of a group of adventurers quickly and simply in the rules section and still got into the action nice and quickly, even if that novella hadn't been there at all. It recognises that all fantasy worlds are much of a muchness and honestly no one cares as much about Blobby the Mighty's castle made of cheese or his twelve large geese as they do about the orc that might be lurking around the next corner. Sitting in a tavern and having someone come up with a problem to be solved might be extremely hackneyed, but it's also extremely efficient. Rescue a maiden from a vampire who lives over the haunted moors, that is all the introduction to the action I think you really need. It focuses on what I as a player care about in the setting, rather than a bunch of stuff I don't, like the doings of people and institutions that I'm never going to meet. 
I'm probably going to have an amnesiac protagonist in my next game book, which is also completely hack, but again, that will allow me to drop the player very quickly into the action, and I think it's worth doing hack stuff if the benefit you accrue from it is worth it. So that is the first Hero Quest book. We will be covering more of these in future episodes. I have to say I very much enjoyed it. Dave Morris is a great writer, and the novella at the start was much better than I expected. The gamebook is simple enough, but it all hangs together beautifully, and even if it doesn't take long to beat, it's been designed to allow for replayability in order to find lots of little secrets along the way. It's just a really good time, worth picking up if you see it for cheap. That is all for this episode. Join me again in a couple of weeks when we'll be playing Spectral Stalkers, book 45 in the Fighting Fantasy series. If you want to get in touch with me in the meantime, you can do so by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com, or by following me over on Blue Sky at hjdoom. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.